I was walking down East 121st Street in Harlem, eating a mango carved to look like a flower on a stick. Yes, you can get such things. They were delicious. And I'd been in Harlem not quite 48 hours at that point. I was there in my role as the volunteer coordinator for the Little Sisters of the Assumption. They have volunteers in cities all over the Northeast. From the moment I got off the subway, I noticed that everyone I passed was looking at me. Some people smiled, but most were giving me serious side eye. I was getting grilled big time, no matter what I did. Then I noticed I got grilled when I went to check on the volunteers at the headquarters at 115th Street. I got grilled walking to the bodega down the block. I got grilled by the cashier and all the customers in there. In the late afternoon of the second day I was there, I'm eating that mango, walking down the sidewalk, trying to not let the mango juice get all over me. And then it hit me. I'm white. I'm virtually the only white person around. I was different. I was a stranger. And I was suspect for being so. I couldn't remember seeing another white person other than a couple of the sisters and some of the volunteers. I was the odd one out. And then I was going about my business as if everything was normal, as if it's normal to just walk down a sidewalk where you are eating a mango, as if it's normal to go to the corner store, as if I had a right, wherever I was, to be at ease and at home. What possible issue could anyone have with me? And this was yet another time I woke up from the fog, the dream of privileged whiteness. Now I know that just me talking about this stuff probably has some of you thinking, there he goes again. Why is it always about race? Well, because it is in so many ways and so thoroughly and profoundly that when it hits us, who have been blind to the magnitude of it, it staggers us like an unexpected punch to the face. This morning, I don't want to delve into all the injustices of white supremacy and racism so much, as I want to talk about our reactions as white people to the topic, and how we can better understand and overcome negative reaction so we can better help dismantle the racism. Debbie Irving, who we've heard in our readings this morning, suggests there are three basic strategies for white people to engage the topic of race in an ongoing and effective basis. One is curiosity. We'll always make snap judgments, but it's important to ask us and ourselves what voices are present, what messages are being sent, whose perspective am I not hearing? in the news, in a conversation, in a classroom. Two, 
have courage. Being courageous makes it easier to continue to be courageous again. Because it takes a little bravery to engage in things that are difficult. And three, as she says, tolerance. Not being tolerant of others, but being tolerant of our own perfections, vulnerabilities, anxieties, and fears when we engage difficult things. Being tolerant of ourselves that that's okay. For years I taught in a high school where virtually every single one of my students was black or Latinx. And I had to engage curiosity daily. I had to learn a lot about my students whose culture was very, very, very different from mine. I made a lot of mistakes. Sometimes I had no idea why my students were angry with me. Because it was something about who they are and their experiences I didn't understand that reacted to something I said or did. And that went on every day I worked there for years. And I had to get tolerant of that and being okay with that happening to me all the time. Developing racial or intercultural sensitivity is a learning process. Psychologist Milton Bennett in the 1980s proposed that it's a developmental process, that human beings go through six-step process of being able to accept and move between different cultures. And the steps are, one, denial of difference, two, defense against difference, three, minimize difference, four, accept difference, five, adapt to difference, and six, integration of difference. The theory says, developmentally, we go through these stages in order. But we can also, at any time and place, live, think, and act out of a previous stage we've been through. So it's not just a linear progression or always perfect to where we've worked up to. So each of these, denial of difference, not recognizing that cultural differences even exist. You know, if you're befuddled that urban fashion includes baggies, where the pants are hanging down off the rear end with the underwear showing, Sometimes you're like, where does that come from? It's just not in my experience. That's not a culture. It's just wrong. <clears throat> this is the hardest one to break through, denial of difference. It's like a fish saying to another fish, gee, the water here seems a lot more polluted lately. And the other fish says, what water? What are you talking about? In the original Cosmo series, Carl Sagan tried to explain the science of multiple dimensions. And he used a story about a universe called Flatland, where everything has two dimensions only, length and width. And he said, imagine a creature, he said, say an apple from a, a place where there's three physical dimensions, happens upon Flatland, kind of hovering over it. And he sees all the Flatland inhabitants, all the squares and rectangles and polygons and stuff sliding around and interacting with each other. And he says, gee. I'd like to let them know I'm, I'm here. So he tries to enter Flatland, and all the Flatlanders can see appearing out of nowhere is a red line, because only two dimensions of him can be seen. Not making success having any contact with the Flatlanders, he decides to shove a passing square to see if he can get some reaction. 
And the square all of a sudden lifts above flatland. And he looks, what he comes to see is down, very confused. He sees all his friends sliding around each other, talking to each other, going to the movies. And he's befuddled. He doesn't know what to make of it. And he's trying to get sense of it, and he slowly floats back down into flatland. And all of a sudden, he just appears in front of his friends. And they say, where were you hiding that you could sneak up on us like that? And he says, I think, I think I was up. And they pat him on his sides and comfort him. He always was a little odd. And sometimes when we're dealing with different culture, it seems as if we're encountering flatland. It just seems like it cannot exist, cannot be there. And we have a very hard time understanding it. If we can get past that, get past the fact that differences do exist in culture and that they're legitimate differences and that cultures are different, not better or worse than each other, then we have to encounter defense against difference. We can't deny there's any difference, so we get defensive. We think, even if we don't express it to ourselves or others, my culture and its ways are normal and must be defended against any attempts to dismantle it, hurt it, or harm it. Speak English in America. Our way of life is being threatened by those people. Pretty soon, if gay people get married, we'll marry animals. Defense against differences. We get defensive because the mere recognition of difference can mean upsetting our entire sense of our place in things. Our sense of history, of who we are, where we come from, where we're going. And in defense against difference work, we need to start to understand when people start to talk about race and Black Lives Matter, no one's saying that it's wrong, incorrect, or bad to be white. What people are saying is everything else should be as good and treated the same. Well, there's no such thing as reverse discrimination. The first step in entering into intercultural work is knowing and being proud of who you are. Only from a sense of yourself can you enter into dialogue, acceptance, and learning about the other. So the first step people usually go through in training in intercultural work is getting a sense of who you are, your history. What is your culture? And thinking of it as your culture, not normal culture, but the one you know then it starts to become easier to hear people telling you about their culture as the one they know. And you start to get a little less defensive about having to judge it as better, worse, or competing against yours. In defense against difference work, we learn that race is not a zero-sum game, where if one culture gains, the other has to lose. Equal rights are not special rights. They're equal rights. One's culture cannot be diminished by accepting other cultures as valid. What happens is that we struggle with the loss of the centrality, 
the importance, the specialness of our culture. Because when we do, we're in flatland again, right? Like, what do you mean there's an up? There's not an up. Well, yeah. And there's other cultures besides our privileged white culture, which is not normal as much as it's the one in power. A first step in not feeling angry or anxiety is just recognizing there are different cultures and our culture is one. We can learn about ourselves and be proud of ourselves. Each time our society has to take a step forward on the anti-racism path that means admitting the story we have been telling ourselves about ourselves isn't necessarily what we thought it was. It was either a lie or it minimized the bad parts. White people in our culture tell the story of race to ourselves the way parents tell scary stories to their children. We minimize the ugly, scary parts so there won't be nightmares. And this is a normal process because history is written by the people who win. One thing we know when we are working on denial of difference is that other stories need to be in our story to get the full story. And we leave out things that make it difficult or we minimize them. And our American story of race still minimizes, still minimizes a great deal the difficult parts, such as what happened to the Indians, who didn't all get drunk, they were systematically exterminated. <laughs> and the enslavement of other human beings, in which virtually, in a, in a very real way, all wealth in this country is based. And when we encounter that, that's not the story we've been telling ourselves. We tell ourselves the story of the nice little pilgrims having dinner with the nice Indians. Not exactly how it always went down. So when we get confronted with this other view of reality as we know it, it's normal to get defensive. It's really hard to learn how to hear the other perspective that's very challenging and just sit and step back and listen and let the other own their story, have the different culture. The worst thing we can do in doing this work is get afraid. As Master Yoda taught us, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Fear is indeed powerful. But Yoda also taught Luke, when Luke said he wasn't afraid, Yoda taught him, well, you should be. Because there are things of which we do need to be fearful in order to work against them and dismantle them. And racism and white supremacy and defending differences are one of those things. Then we get to minimizing differences. Minimizing differences in, is when we focus not on what makes us different, but only the things we have in common. The focus is on universal values, love, peace, friendship, learning. This allows us to deal with the difference in a much more acceptable way. It's more comfortable. 
And yet, minimizing leads to things that don't really work for us. I don't see color as minimizing. Well, when you can say you don't see color, you have the choice to not see it. People of color never have the choice to not see color because they're reminded of their color all the time, usually in many negative ways. We're post-racial. We've elected a black president. We're finished now, minimizing the differences. Once we get past minimizing differences, we can get into accepting that difference exists. If we want to go on accepting difference and then doing the adaptive work of adapting to difference, it has to force us to deal with this feeling of, I'm not good at it. We have to be okay with being in the spot Karen and I were in of not knowing what's coming, trying to deal with it the best we can, admitting when we don't know, trying to learn together. And this is where Debbie Irving's idea about tolerance comes in. When we wake up to differences and engage them, we will continue to feel uncomfortable. We'll continue to feel anxious. We may continue to feel threatened. We will be frustrated. And our strategy is to practice tolerance, not tolerance of people who are different, tolerance of our own discomfort to get more comfortable with the idea that it's okay to be uncomfortable and vulnerable and imperfect. Then we can work on adapting to difference, changing our speech, our behavior, our thinking to account for differences of culture. This forces us to really confront vulnerability as we begin to change our behavior and speech, we're going to continue to behave and speak and act wrong and make mistakes. And so we've got to get back into that tolerance of ourselves not doing it perfectly again. And if we can work on that well enough, we get to integration of difference. The ability to actually move between cultures back and forth with ease. We have a great cultural example that President Obama was able to move between cultures almost seamlessly, which is how he got himself elected president and mobilized a big voting base that was very different from each other in many ways. We then can start to help other people come along this road with us. And one of the most important reasons we have for engaging this work and this developmental process is our children. Because racism and hatred are learned behaviors. In her article, Talking About Race Age by Age, Kara Corridan breaks this down about when and how children start to think about race. Six months to one year, children see differences in skin and color and hair texture and it's okay that early to start exposing them to diversities of experience so they see them more and more often. Let them see you being with people who are different from you. Age two to three, children start talking about skin color and hair differences. They may comment about a person's skin. They may say that that's different and you can say yes it is. 
At age four to six, children might see dark skin as dirty, and we'll have to correct them and say, no, it's just different. Otherwise, it's just like our skin. Ages seven to eight, children begin to see differences and similarities in people. If they mention a classmate's skin as a different color or hair a different texture, yes, agree with them, it is. Also help them understand that those differences are just that, differences, none better, none worse. On their Medium-hosted blog, Real Talk with Candid Allies offers advice about overcoming the difficulties we face as parents talking about race. They say there's three reasons we're usually uncomfortable doing this. One, we're not comfortable about talking about the subject ourselves, so we're not comfortable talking about it with our children. Two, we don't want to be overly preachy. We want to be good liberal parents and let our children make up their own minds. And three, we don't want to burden our children or make them a target if they start to stick out for standing up for others who are different. And they offer these remedies. We need to practice talking about race even when it's difficult. Bring up the topic when we can with our children, not just at Martin Luther King Day or Black History Month or when some horrible incident happens on TV or when the president says something ugly and disgusting about race, but on a more regular basis to practice the difficulty. If we don't want to sound preachy, we can use some tactics such as, yeah, I think that's unfair. What do you think? Some people believe, but I don't. I believe this. What do you think? Being kind is very important to me, and it seems that that behavior or word wasn't kind at all. What do you think about it? To overcome our concern about our children being targeted, well, we have to think and step back and say, do we actually have a choice about that? Parents of color have no choice about whether their children are going to be targeted or harmed for standing up. And maybe that's something in itself to talk about with children. Yes, it can be dangerous, but if we teach our children values and right and wrong, we can trust them to make decisions that are appropriate for them when the time comes. And this is our vital work we're called to as white people. Dr. King said, in the end, we will not remember the hateful words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. And it's evident beyond question that we engage a culture right now where even the top level leadership in our country, right up to the president, is behaving in obviously racist and white supremacist ways, and ugly ones sometimes at that. This has given rise to legitimizing hateful and violent behavior towards many who are different, especially people of color. So as difficult as it is, we need to learn why we find race so difficult, start to learn how to find it less difficult, and then tolerate the being uncomfortable as we practice doing better. And we, here in this congregation, know how to do this. Completing the welcoming congregation around LGBTQ issues was this exact same process of 
developmental intercultural sensitivity with that issue. And we went at it, and we stopped denying difference, and we stopped minimizing, we started working on adapting and integration of differences so that we could, in fact, be a real more welcoming congregation and ally. We know how to do this. We have done it before. I think we can tolerate a little bit more discomfort and do it with race, too. If we can get comfortable with our own discomfort, we can create a society one day where parents do not have to be anxious about talking about race with their children, where adults don't have to feel uncomfortable talking about race with each other. We can create a culture where one day no child will be judged by the color of their skin, but instead, as Dr. King said, by the content of their character. 